Imagine a world not unlike our own. It's populated by wondrous creatures. It has beautiful beaches and high mountains. It even has things that defy conventional descriptions. And yet the most familiar thing you find on this world is human-looking, a green female form that is as beautiful as it is mysterious. This is the story of Ransom, a man who travels to Venus, a.k.a. Paralandra, to fulfill some sort of sacred mission as given to him by God himself. And as much as that sounds like a great lead-in to a review of a book itself, I'm actually going to be focusing in on just a few pages of the entire book, the portion where our hero is introduced to two higher-level spiritual beings, like angels, and how their appearances absolutely rock Ransom's understanding of the male and female forms as given by God through gender. I'm J.C. Alfelto for The Writer's Lens, and this is episode 72, Paralandra and Explaining Gender, as told by C.S. Lewis. Welcome back to The Writer's Lens. I'm J.C. Alfalto, your host for this podcast, and I'm also the voice of The Narrative Wars. So if you've checked out The Narrative Wars yet, or you have no idea what this is, and you're listening to The Writer's Lens for the very first first time, welcome to The Writer's Lens. Uh, you have some catching up to do, because this is episode 72 in, uh, you know, in the overall scope of things, I guess, uh, not counting interviews and other uh, sort of flashpoint episodes I've done in the past. Uh, but I also have another podcast called The Narrative Wars, which is a little more cheeky. It's a little more uh, direct with some narratives that are out there that are trying to dominate culture and society as a whole. Uh, if you want to go over there and uh, brush up on uh, some of the hot buttons of American culture or perhaps even internationally, if I ever get to some of those topics, you can check that out as well. Uh, but for now, we are on The Writer's Lens, uh, which is a podcast about storytelling and the power of uh, really, really good storytelling, if you will, and how that helps to reflect and also reinforce culture uh, wherever it is told. So today's episode is uh, covering one of my favorite authors of all time, C.S. Lewis, as well as one of my newfound favorite books, which is the second book in his Space Trilogy, the little-known Space Trilogy of C.S. Lewis. Uh, He is more well-known, if you're not a, a familiar with C.S. Lewis, uh, he is much more famous for his works like The Problem of Pain, uh, The Four Loves, uh, Mere Christianity, which is probably one of his most famous famous works of nonfiction. Uh, Lewis is one of the first great apolog- apologists of the 20th century when it comes to the Christian faith. Lewis was a uh, outspoken atheist for many years, but eventually became a Christian. He was eventually converted over to Christianity. And the work that he did as a Christian is, again, like I said, much more famous than anything he did prior to that. Uh, So Lewis also wrote uh, this thing called The Chronicles of Narnia. You might be familiar with it. Uh, It was made into some movies not too long ago, and I think they're doing a reboot on Amazon or Hulu or something. Who knows? But uh, Lewis was a very, very influential figure in literature and uh, or modern literature, hundred years ago and now even until today, uh, you know, his work has influenced, you know, multiple generations at this point. Uh, he's still regarded as probably one of the greatest wordsmiths of the last hundred years. And he was a good friend of J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote Lord of the Rings, which is also an incredibly powerful and influential work of fantasy. So Lewis is a pretty big name. Uh, he's definitely a big name in the Christian community and also in uh, the uh, community of literature and English at large. 
But this space trilogy that he did is one that I was not very familiar with up until probably about a few years ago. Because uh, I knew of Narnia, I knew of some of his other books like Mere Christianity, The Four Loves, things like that. I also read uh, The Great Divorce, which is a short story, as well as The Screwtape Letters, which are fantastic. So, so good. Check those out if you if you feel so inclined to. But the Space Trilogy was uh, is a trilogy. You know, it's, it's three stories. And it follows, at least the first two books, follow a guy who is basically kidnapped and taken to Mars... And then in the second book, he finds himself on the planet Venus. And I know that's not much for a synopsis, uh, as we will get into it later, but but Lewis does much of what he does in a lot of his work. He, he ties in these really deep, meaningful themes and Christian allegory, Christian metaphor, or what, uh, however you want to put it, into these books and doing it in this space trilogy. He does it in sort of a more of a science fiction sense. And the guy was way ahead of his time in many ways, or maybe he was right on time with a lot of his ideas. Uh, but with this space trilogy, I'm going to be focusing in on his second book, which was titled Paralandra. Uh, the first one being Out of the Silent Planet, and then the third one being called the, That Hideous Strength. So Paralandra, without uh, getting too much into the first book synopsis, Paralandra follows three characters. There's three principal characters in this outside of the fourth one who helps narrate it. Uh, a character named Ransom, which is the protagonist of the story. He was the uh, main character of the first book. He was kidnapped, taken to Mars as sort of a sacrifice by some science guys who thought that was the purpose of sort of learning things from the Martian people. Again, this is all back in early 1900s uh, when this was written. Okay, This was not something that was done in the later half of the 1900s or anything like that. Uh, the trip to the moon, all that kind of good stuff. So again, Lewis, way ahead of his time, and uh, much like Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote John Carter on Mars, way ahead of his time. But uh, follows his character, Ransom, was taken to Mars, he escapes, he ends up learning that uh, the planet there is inhabited by sort of these angelic beings. There are these creatures called the Oyar, or this beings called Sorns that inhabit there, which are sort of these tall, almost Entish-like creatures. Uh, they're spiritual in nature. And then there's this thing called the Oyarsa, which is kind of like the spirit of the planet. And that's a common theme throughout all of Lewis's work. Mars is actually not called Mars. It's called Malachandra uh, in, the, uh, in the book. Falchandra is the name of the silent planet, which is Earth. And then uh, Paralandra is the name of Venus. Uh, so if you're familiar with your science class, uh, there's Mercury, Venus, then Earth. So Earth is the third planet from the sun, Venus being the second. Uh, that's where the story takes place is on Paralandra. Uh, so Ransom is sent to Venus. Now on Venus, he meets a character called the Green Lady, and she is the future queen of the planet, and she uh, uh, inhabits the land with all these wonderful creatures that look like creatures from Earth, but they're not really like the creatures of Earth. They're like lizard-like. There are some birds. They all have different fantastic colors. Uh, and when Ransom, which I'll explain in a minute why he's there, but when he gets to Venus, otherwise known as Paralandra, uh, he experiences these kind of lush environments, which are again similar to Earth, but not really like Earth's. So it's there's a you know there's a lot of creative liberty taken here. But he meets this character called the Green Lady, who's a green, feminine-looking uh, creature that is totally naked, and so is Ransom. Uh, but one of the key components of the book is that Ransom does not uh, desire her sexually. Uh, there's something about being on the planet that affects his 
sort of human nature in some sense, even though he's from what they would call the bent world or the silent planet, uh, because it's the planet that essentially does not uh, beam with the goodness or the light of the Lord. Uh, again, using some you know some allegory to the Christian story here. Uh, Ransom is on this planet to essentially save the Green Lady from something. He doesn't know what it is, but he's sent there by the people who saved him on Mars, uh, a.k.a. Malacandra. Uh, he doesn't quite know what his, again, what his journey is or why he's there, but he, he goes willingly. He goes as an obedient servant to, uh, to this whole idea uh, of uh, these sort of uh, spiritual beings telling him to go there. So he travels to the planet, meets the Green Lady, and while he's there, he meets the third character in this story, which is known as Professor Weston. Uh, Weston was the villain of the last story. He is a quote-unquote man of science, capital S science, not just little case, uh, lowercase s science, uh, we're talking uppercase science, who comes to Venus claiming to have reformed of his old ways, but it's soon apparent that he has not reformed of his old ways. He's actually there to figure out the quote-unquote life force of the universe, uh, he sort of has it in for the spiritual world, all these kinds of things. Uh, and that's primarily why he's there. And Ransom can't quite figure out why Weston is there until it's pretty much too late. Uh, but, the, but the primary focus of this book is Ransom trying to convince the Green Lady not to give in to Weston's uh, ploys and his desires to sort of corrupt her. And I don't mean corrupt her in a sexual sense, because what happens on the planet is that after Ransom and Weston meet each other, spoiler alert, they, they kind of have this altercation. Uh, Weston believes himself to be on sort of this divine journey. He's going to figure things out through science. There's this big dialogue through it. And eventually Weston is overcome with demonic possession. Now, first of all, I should say, it's not because he's a man of science that he's given over to demonic possession. There's a whole other component here and context that we have to talk about. Uh, because science and faith have often been at odds with each other. I've spoken on other podcasts before that they should not be. They actually do help complement one another. I know to a lot of people that seems like a misnomer, but uh, again, I would encourage anyone to look into that more themselves. I don't really have time on this podcast to do it. But Weston comes into demonic possession, and when he over when he's overcome through demonic possession, he tries to convince the queen of things like vanity and pride and selfishness. And he, he he starts taking apart animals like birds that live on the planet and ripping their feathers off and trying to make them into nice coats for the green lady to wear. And so Ransom realizes that part of his journey is to basically defend her and keep her from falling into what would be essentially sin and making the entire planet of Venus fall into the same fate that Earth did. That is pretty much the overarching theme of this entire story. So it's pretty freaky stuff uh, because Ransom actually ends up fighting Weston physically, seemingly kills him, and then battles the reanimated corpse of Weston who has been demonically possessed. And then uh, after having defeated Weston, again, these are all spoiler alerts for you, uh, he buries him, returns to the Green Lady, uh, who finds out that she has now gone through the task of uh, not succumbing to the temptations, the full temptations of Weston. And uh, she is then reunited with the king, uh, and so they can now rule over the planet uh, in relative harmony, if you will. But it's at this point in the story, after Ransom has defended the, the Green Lady, he's fought the, the demon, uh, 
Uh, he's done his best form of apologetics on Venus that he could do. He comes into contact with these two beings, the O, again, I'm going to botch these names, the Oarasu, I believe is what they're called, which are basically these higher order angelic beings that are the sort of physical representations of the planets that they reside on. So there's one that represents Mars, a.k.a. Malachandra, and Venus, Paralandra, and their spirit bodies come into being. Ransom recognizes them at one point when the Green Lady is being reunited with the king. Uh, and when Ransom encounters these characters, he gives this sort of long monologue, if you will, of what they look like. And it's beautiful imagery that Lewis projects between these two characters. He says in one sense they're moving, but they're not moving relative to everything around them. Uh, they, are, they are here and nowhere at the same time. Uh, just some kind of cool paradoxes going on. But then there's this one part that really stuck out to me while I was reading the book where it says Lewis depicts these spirits as being masculine and feminine beings, respectively. And as Ransom puts it, it's something akin to gender being displayed to him in a sort of spiritual or heavenly sense. So, wow. Okay, so so this, <laughs> I've never really, in my readings, encountered something quite like this. Usually when you encounter the, the, the idea of gender, in a book or a science fiction novel, it, it ends up becoming something that's more about tangible materialism, like the gender bending is more so on a physical sense. You know, the person ex, uh, exudes both male and female genitalia, or uh, they're androgynous in some way. You're 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 kind of unsure because the you know there's the body is is you know leans a little bit male or leans a little bit feminine. But Lewis attempts to talk about gender in a spiritual sense and how it's being displayed to him so that he can understand it. Because many times over, the character Ransom is trying to explain to the reader and to the narrator what he's seeing, but then he's interpreting it as they're projecting to me the means by which I'm best able to understand it as a mortal man. So kind of wrap your head around that for a bit, if you will, uh, with the depth of, of one such as C.S. Lewis. <laughs> so I'm going to read a small snippet of this from Paralandra, so you can kind of get an idea of what we're talking about here. Uh, so, again, this is from Paralandra. So he says, Both the bodies were naked, and both were free from any sexual characteristics, either primary or secondary, that one would have expected. But whence came this curious difference between them? He found that he could point to no single feature wherein the difference resided, yet it was impossible to ignore. One could try, Ransom has tried a hundred times, to put it into words. He has said that Malacandra was like rhythm and Paralandra like melody. He has said that Malacandra affected him like a quantitative, Paralandra like an accentual meter. He thinks that the first held in his hand something like a spear, but the hands of the other were open, with the palms towards him. But I don't know that any of these attempts has helped me much. Again, this is the narrator talking through Ransom, trying to explain things. At all events, what Ransom saw at the moment was the real meaning of gender. Everyone must, everyone must sometimes have wondered why in nearly all tongues certain inanimate objects are masculine and others are feminine. What is masculine about a mountain or feminine about certain trees? Ransom has cured me of believing that this is a purely morphological phenomenon, depending on the form of the word. Still less is gender and imagination, or, or, or sorry, still less is gender an imaginative extension of sex. 
Our ancestors did not make mountains masculine because they projected male characteristics into them. The real process, sorry, I gotta turn the page here. The real process is the reverse. Gender is a reality and a more fundamental reality than sex. Sex is in fact merely the adaptation to organic life of a fundamental polarity which divides all created beings. Are you with me on this? Because <laughs> it gets, I'm gonna stop here in a minute and let you kind of come up for air. Female sex is simply one of the things that have feminine gender. There are many others, and masculine and feminine meet us on planes of reality where male and female would be simply meaningless. Masculine is not attenuated male, not feminine attenuated female. On the contrary, the male and female of organic creatures are rather faint and blurred reflections of masculine and feminine. So, wow, there's a lot in there to unpack. Okay, so, so what exactly is being said here. I mean, in layman's terms, if you could go back and reread that paragraph, that was all one paragraph, by the way. And, and in fact, it wasn't even the entire paragraph because Lewis is, is notorious for these really long, meaty uh, paragraphs that can literally go on for a page. I mean, what is it, what exactly is being said here in this first section about gender in terms of a spiritual sense? First of all, gender matters. Okay, there's, there's definitely a quality of masculine and feminine characteristics that become expressions in people. And there are two of them. There's a masculine sense and there's a feminine sense. And I know there's a lot of debate about, oh, there's more genders than that in the world. Uh, I would contest that there are two. Okay, there's a masculine and there's a feminine. And you could say there's a neuter, I guess, because of I, I took four years of German and there was a neuter, there was a neuter uh, gender as well. But this concept of tangible reality being a reflection of God's masculinity through language or femininity through language, I think is very significant because it's telling us that the expressions that we have in gender, be they masculine or feminine, are much deeper than just, well, I feel a certain way, or this is what's the cultural norm, or this is what the expectation is of me as a person who is of the masculine or feminine gender. Uh, so it, it goes to show that God is sort of Lord over all of these things, right? Um, there, was a, uh, there was a YouTube video that I saw a long time ago of a guy by the name of Michael Dowd, who's like a, he's a pastor, uh, but he's not really like a, he's not a true Christian pastor. He's, what he, he's part of a, of a movement called Progressive Christianity, which really isn't Christianity. It's more of a, kind of like a, I don't want to say cult. It's more like a another religion of it entirely of itself because it doesn't really focus on Jesus. But Dowd um, talks about in his his TED talk. He talks about the personification of things like the ocean. So there was Poseidon, which represented the sort of the mysterious majesty of the ocean, and the wind became like the Holy Spirit, etc. And Dowd talks about this concept of trying to be in right relationship to reality. Uh, he says that this is how you use nature to affirm how scientific evidence is how God speaks to us today. Uh, you know, we say her when we refer to things we take delight in. So boats, ships, cars, things we, we would take care of, we would attribute to being more feminine. Whereas the he could refer to something that's unknown or powerful or fearsome or maybe even intimidating, like mountains, wild animals, you know, strangers. You know, whenever there's a, a strange figure, we say he, right? Or there's an animal that could be uh, coming after us. We don't really know what it is. We just refer to it, oh, he's on his way over. Uh, 
So these are, these are expressions through gender that we assign to something because of the way it's acting, the expression that we see coming towards us. And so there's this, this one really unique moment. And again, I'm not promoting Dowd's theology, by the way. I'm just referencing a, a TED Talk that kind of gave me some meat and potatoes to talk about. Uh, uh, again, I, Dowd, I think, is not a... It's, he's a radical teacher in the Christian faith, so I just I want to make sure I make mention of that in this episode so that people aren't going, oh, no, Josh is a... or JCL is promoting Dowd's work. I, I'm not. I, I would not promote his work whatsoever, so I want to make that very clear. Uh, but his commentary about personifying things is true in a sense of the expression of what they are. Uh, and Lewis alludes to this. He says that once one of the beings had almost what seemingly was a spear in hand, while the other had the palms wide open. Now, when you hear that, when you hear the spear and you hear palms wide open in the other, what do you immediately assume, right? Uh, I know some of you more rebellious folks are going to be like, well, the spear is the woman's and the open hands are the man's. You know, No, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say that. You would say that the spear belongs to probably the masculine being, the more masculine one, and the palms wide open would be the more feminine one. Why is that? Why is that? It's because we associate that not only just with the sex of the person, but with the sort of characteristics of what it would mean to be feminine versus being masculine. Masculine is more of sort of like presence and conquest and uh, the taking over of things, the, the mystery of not knowing what to expect here. Whereas the feminine is much more of a genteel, nurturing, inviting, delighting, things like that. These are the expressions that we would find more so with the feminine. So, so Lewis goes on. So we're going to return here real quick and then kind of wrap up in this episode. But uh, where was I here? So uh, blah, 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 blah. the reproductive functions, their differences in strength and size, partly exhibit but partly also confuse and misrepresent the real polarity. All this Ransom saw, as it were, with his own eyes. The two white creatures were sexless, but he of Malacandra was masculine, not male. She of Paralandra was feminine, not female. Malacandra seemed to him to have the look of one standing armed at the ramparts of his own remote, archaic world in ceaseless vigilance. His eyes, ever roaming the earth toward a horizon, whence his danger come, came along ago. The sailors look, Ransom once said to me, you know, eyes that are impregnated with distance, but the eyes of Perilandra opened, as it were, inward, as if they were this cur curtained gateway to a world of waves and murmurings and wandering airs, of life that rocked in winds and splashed on mossy stones and descended as the dew and rose sunward in thin-spun delicacy of mist. Very, very powerful imagery again, you know. So we'll go on here for a little bit more and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. On Mars, the very forests are of stone. In Venus, the lands swim. For now he thought of them no more as Malacandra and Perilandra, and he called them by their Tellurian names. Now the Tellurian names are what their true names are. Um, and so he says, my eyes, uh, as he said to himself, my eyes have seen Mars and Venus. I have seen Ares and Aphrodite. Um, so pretty interesting, uh, interesting, interesting, interesting depiction here by Lewis. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that Lewis is a gender expert or anything like that, but but I think that he's on the right track as far as the spiritual expression of the masculine and the feminine. Uh, I think, again, when we think about 
something like gender, uh, it is immediately associated to the biological sex of the person. And rightfully so, because you're going to find more masculine characteristics in a male and more feminine characteristics in a female. That's just part of the expression of where we find these characteristics. And these characteristics, again, are owned entirely by God, as, as Lewis is saying in this. So, pretty wild stuff. Uh, I would be very curious to see what people would say about Lewis's material, because I know that many professors, people that I've seen on social media who have been touting about gender studies, I don't ever see gender in the spiritual sense being represented. I, I, I just don't see it. I don't know if that really is something that is considered. Um, I know that cultural norms are talked about a lot, traditions are talked about a lot, expectations of, of family units and gender roles are talked about a lot. But what about the spiritual context of gender and what it means? Uh, I think there's something to be said there. I think there's more of an eternal value to be had when talking about that. And I think Lewis is, is really good at that. So, uh, so in conclusion, gender is not just associated from biological, it's not disassociated from biological uh, sex. The two go, <coughs> excuse me, the two go hand in hand and we're always meant to, because in one sense you have biological, immutable, and tangible evidence of a sex, which is different from the other. Again, this is not negate those, you know, again, I'm, I'm not trying to say this negates those who'd be Kleinfelder or a bone or who are born with both genitalia. That's not what I'm saying. Because inevitably, gender becomes expression of these biological qualities. So masculinity is expressed and so is femininity. And when we have a broken world such as our own, we see this mishmash of gender across the, spend, uh, across the spectrum, um, which especially in our world today becomes really overtly confusing. And it's all because we are ceasing to recognize the wonder and the splendor of the expressions of the masculine and the feminine. Uh, you know, again, and the question then becomes, why is that? Why don't we enjoy the wonder and splendor of masculine and feminine expressions? It's because we end up seeing the most broken versions of them. Uh, we think that there aren't better or best versions of masculine or feminine qualities. But this, you know, this really isn't true. You know, because once we see the best version in action, men being masculine, women being feminine, we snap back to reality and we are able to recognize that there is a standard and there is something to aspire towards in both of these categories. You know, we, we don't have to be confused. You know, we don't have to do any of this gender bending stuff. Uh, we don't have to be of the belief that our professors uh, out there may tell us that there are multiple, multiple genders. Okay, that, that's, trying to fit, that's trying to fit a broken ideology into a broken world is really what it is at the end of the day. Uh, we know who we are because... There was a God who says who we are, not some, uh, again, I, I might be taking liter uh, liberties here, not some postmodern philosophy that's ultimately going to be self-destructive and broken in its own infrastructure. You know, if we, if we can adhere to the reality that there are best versions of masculinity and best versions of femininity, then we can aspire to those. We can aspire to express those in men and in women. And even, in, okay, again, in people who are on the outlying regions, the fringe of biological sex that may not be an either or. Uh, you know, I, I had listened to a, uh, uh, a TED talk, which I don't really do too much as, as much anymore because I find it to be very counter to my own uh, worldview, which I know to some people, oh, you're not keeping an open mind. Uh, but you do have to be careful with that stuff. Uh, you do have to be careful with some of the stuff you let in. That's just reality uh, because uh, some stuff can skew the truth at the end of the day. But there was a really interesting... Uh, TED Talk on biological sex, which 
was interesting and how I just thought it really jumped the reservation. But there was a, a young lady who talked about how she had both male testicles and female breasts and a vagina. And uh, she's what is known as intersex. But she looks like a female. She looks like a woman. I mean, she has all the components. It's just that she also has testes inside of her. And she's, she's sterile because of that. She is a sterile person. But, again, this does not mean that we negate the person's humanity. That's not what we're saying in any of this. What we are saying is that there is a standard of excellence for masculinity and feminine expression. And we should try to aspire to that. Because, in a spiritual sense, it's there. It's absolutely there. It's been embedded in us for years. Uh, and it is something to aspire to uh, that ultimately can be better for everybody. So C.S. Lewis, again, way ahead of his time, did a great job with the Space Trilogy and ultimately with the story of Paralandra. So if you're interested more in that, it's called the Space Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. Paralandra is the second one. That was the one I was reading from tonight or today or this morning whenever you happen to catch this uh, episode of The Writer's Lens. And then the last one being that hideous strength. So hope you enjoy this. Uh, be sure to like, share, subscribe. If you do have commentary about this podcast, you can reach me at jclfelto.com. Uh, there should be a uh, click there to email me or get in touch with me. So if you have comments or questions about these episodes, be sure to check it out over there. And I will be happy to get back to you, whether it be negative, positive, or indifferent. Uh, I will check and, and, uh, on, the, on the commentary. So uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, listeners, I will be back again soon. This is JCL Felto for the Writer's Lines.